Yay. <laughs> it's so great to be here. I love Hotlanta. It's so good. Um, so I'm going to talk about um, uh, new agents. Uh, and it's funny, um, Paul's, I don't know if Paul, he's probably still out having coffee, but his talk is actually going to help quite a bit when we start talking about broadly neutralizing antibodies. So I'm excited to be here, um, and uh, I would love to have a million questions. These are my disclosures. Um, these are the learning objectives. You know, one is to just think, well, do we really need new antivirals? And I'll talk about that. And then talk about the potential for long-acting and then truly very long-acting therapy and whether that will happen. So these are our goals. I think, I, I think everybody in the room can kind of uh, buy into these. We want to maintain uh, or restore health to people living with HIV um, through suppression of viral replication. We want to really minimize the short and long-term adverse effects of our treatment, and uh, we've done a pretty good, good job of that, I think. And I think this third point, we want to have therapies that are accessible to all people with HIV. And I think that's our biggest challenge. We're pretty good at about 90% of people, I think, or 85%. But, but there's a, a substantial number of people where, where we don't have therapies that are truly accessible. And then, of course, um, treatment is prevention. Uh, and we want to prevent HIV transmission via any route of exposure. So what... What do we have now? Well, oral therapy, we have multiple single tablets. Um, many don't have food restrictions. Some have very few, I, sh I probably shouldn't have said almost no, but very few drug, drug interactions. Um, there are few frequent AEs, and, and Jeff kind of uh, avoided the whole weight gain thing, and we can talk about weight gain if you like at the end or during the case thing, because I have, I have some opinions about that. Um, and they're kind of rare, serious AEs with our current therapy. There's some um, uh, um, case reports of, of diabetes that I think are believable uh, on, on Bictegravir, but they're rare. Uh, and I think they're clear examples of people having substantial weight gain that we don't quite get. Um, we think it, for people who are treatment naive, both INSTEs and uh, uh, Boosted PI therapy is almost resistance-proof. Um, and then um, uh, we have pretty simple therapies for our treatment experience patients that are, that are, even if they have resistant virus, if they're suppressed, but they're not perfect. And now we have long-acting, right? We have cabotegravirpivirine. It's clearly non-inferior to our gold standard oral therapy uh, in people with previous virologic failure. Uh, sorry, without previous virologic failure, people are suppressed. Uh, twice monthly is good. You don't need an oral lead-in. There was a head-to-head -head at, um, at Croy, the solar study, head-to-head -head with Bictegravir, TAF, FTC. And, and, um, and there's, people are interested in this. Our people who have HIV infection and we care for are really interested in this. And, and there are a lot of other things besides just convenience. Um, there are social behavioral factors. There's quality of life. There's the, both um, external and, and lots of times internal uh, stigma. Um, and potentially, and this was also discussed at, at Croy, is maybe this can be used for people that are hardly engaged um, by our current system. Uh, people with mental health, uh, housing instability, uh, substance use. And this is the UCSF experience that, that Monica Gandhi has talked about 
Um, and it's something that, that you know, could be extended beyond San Francisco. But what are the liabilities? Well, um, oral therapy is daily. What if it was weekly or monthly? Wouldn't, that could be better for some people, right? I mean, that, that would be good. Um, we actually don't have a convenient, safe, resistance-resistant um, oral therapy that, that isn't either uh, an integrase inhibitor-based or a boosted. Um, and for people with highly resistant virus, our, our, our therapies are, are, are not simple, whether they're either suppressed or rebounding. Long-acting therapy, um, uh, well, we'd love a long-acting that, that doesn't have resistance risk, even if you're taking it on time. And that is the one um, Achilles of, of cavotegravopivirine, right? That some people who take it on time actually don't succeed. It's only about 1%, 2%, very low number, maybe even less than that. But some people taking it when they're supposed to um, can have virologic failure. And when I start someone on an oral integrase-based therapy, second-generation integrase, I tell them, if you take every pill, you will not fail. Um, and I can't quite say that to people um, uh, who are, go on to long-acting. Um, and there's a lot of restrictions to our current long-acting. And if you think about the US, but if you think about the world, there's a lot of NNRTI resistance floating around. And that really kind of um, hamstrings um, cobaltevaropivirine. And we need longer acting. Every two months is great, but, but, but it's, it's still hard to go out, find, and treat people who can't, who are unable or not accessed by the medical system. And we need something that's affordable and scalable. So I want to say a couple words about lenacapravir. It is a new drug, but it's an approved drug. It's an it's a injectable drug. It's a, a capsid inhibitor. Um, it, right now, it's a, approved for heavily treatment-experienced people who are failing therapy. So, so it's not yet approved for heavily treatment-experienced people who are successfully treated, um, where you're trying to maybe change or simplify. You, you can probably manage that, but, but I don't know. I haven't had to write a prior authorization for lenacapravir yet. Um, but, but it is specifically in the package insert for, for people who are failing therapy, who are viremic. Um, but unfortunately, there are no long-acting partners. It's every six months, you take oral therapy for two days, get a shot, and you're good. Um, but there's no long-acting partner. And, and in the studies that have been done, uh, published in the New England Journal, obviously, if you stop taking your oral therapy and you have a long-acting floating around, that's a risk for resistance. And, and this is not a completely resistance-proof agent. So how we're going to use lenacapavir um, is really um, uh, something of interest. And, and, and I'm sure, given that some of you, 30% of you, follow more than 500 patients, I thought that was phenomenal, um, you're, you're going to have ideas about how you might use lenacapavir. So let's get into the new agents thing. So I'm going to talk about aslatavir. Who has heard about aslatravir? You can raise your hand. We don't need a question. All right. Ah, good, great. So aslatravir is a very cool drug. It's a nucleoside reverse transcriptase translocation inhibitor. So it, part of its action is a little bit like a standard NNRTI because uh, it does compete with um, endogenous nucle uh, nucleotides. Um, but it also uh, prevents the... Um, uh, reverse transcriptase from sliding along. So it blocks translocation. 
So it's incredibly potent. It's a remarkably potent drug. Um, and, and with uh, you know, half a milligram in the original studies, uh, you could suppress viral load for more than a week with one, one dose. So it's very potent and it has a long half-life. And we are, we are and, and we were, very, or we were and we are very excited about this agent. And at Croy, um, we did see, this was a switch study, um, large, fully powered, 300 people per arm, classic switch study. People on Bictegavir, TAF, FTC, were randomized to either a Slatrovir, Duravirine, or stay on the Bictegavir. Uh, FTC was placebo-controlled, randomized, blinded. And you can see it worked very well. And there was very, very, very little resistance. There was only one documented virologic um, failure on Eslatrovir Dravirine in these suppressed people. And, and um, there was no resistance. And, and they probably weren't taking the drug because they couldn't detect Eslatrovir. So that all sounds great. I want you to note, though, that was giving 0.75 milligrams. Um, and this study was completed over a year ago. You might wonder, well, why didn't they publish it? Why this isn't in the New England Journal? And it's because something happened, you know, on the way to the forum, right, Mike? That's it. Um, um, I got to keep Mike's attention by, by movie jokes. I don't know any shows um, except Tick, Tick, Boom, which I really liked. And, and I would urge everybody to watch Tick, Tick, Boom. You can get it on Netflix or something. Um, but anyway, clinical development was paused because there was a... Uh, lymphopenia. So this drug at the dose of 0.75, and I'll show you at a couple other doses, actually caused lymphopenia. And guess what? If you get lymphopenia, what else do you get if you have HIV? You get CD4-openia, whatever that is. CD4. Um, uh, so it's a problem. So if you look at the bottom of the slides, I'm not going to try to point, but on the left, they were going to give once a month oral prep, which a lot of people felt like, whoa, this is a big deal. And you can see this was 60 milligrams of this stuff, right? So, and you can see there was substantial declines in lymphocytes in that study. And then they were going to give once a week therapy in combination with lenacapavir orally. So two oral drugs that could be given once a week. And they were doing it with their version of a long-acting uh, partner, which was, happened to be an NNRTI. And you can see substantial decreases in lymphocytes at 20 milligrams. And then all the way to the right is the studies of 0.75 milligrams Q-day, showing again decrease in lymphocytes, and there was the same decrease in um, CD4, similar percent decrease in CD4. So it was all put on hold. Um, and uh, to, to their credit, the, uh, the company's credit, they worked really hard at understanding this and it was probably an apoptotic effect, specifically in lymphocytes. It turns out lymphocytes are very sensitive to adenosine analogs, and this actually blocks adenosine deaminase, which is one of the things that gets rid of adenosine analogs. There are adenosine analogs that are, that are treatments for B-cell lymphomas, so it's probably some specific effect on lymphocytes. Um, so the once-monthly prevention program has been scrapped. It's no longer going forward. The long-acting implant for prevention, which people were really excited about, is being reassessed. And they have another molecule that they're interested in, which they've said publicly. Um, but what, they, what is going forward is that um, once daily, a slatterer deravirine, but notice the dose, 
0.25, so threefold lower than the dose that caused the toxicity. And if you look at the bottom graph, this is CD4 change in a phase two study, and that top green line is actually a slatrovir and deraverine given at zero, with, with the uh, slatrovir given at 0.25 milligrams. So you can see that CD4 uh, uh, increases were fine. In fact, slightly better, though not statistically better, than deraverine 3TC and TDF. So, so, and they've done very careful work suggesting that this dose of 0.25 is, is um, likely to be safe and not have an impact on lymphocytes. And that daily study is going forward, so a switch study going forward, a treatment-naive study with deraverine going forward, and a once-weekly in partnership with lenacapavir also going forward, but with a lower dose, not, um, not the 20 milligrams once a week. I think it's two milligrams once a week that's going forward. So, so they're going forward, but the once-monthly, and unfortunately the implant, the once-monthly is definitely gone, and the implant is, is being reassessed. Um, so what about other small molecules? So, you know, usually I have like a whole long list. I don't have a whole long list. There is a third generation uh, INSTE being developed, uh, and I, I put in, there's nothing published about it, but there is a link to, to the phase one clinical trial if you want to go there. There's a, a, a second generation capsid inhibitor, same story, phase one, meaning it's in humans, but not yet, there's nothing published. And then there's a series of maturation inhibitors, um, but all of them so far have failed. The most recent one, uh, failed because of resistance. Maturation inhibitors are tough, right? Because you're, you're binding to a protein-protein target, not an enzyme like integrase or protease or, or RT. Um, and so resistance is really a risk. Um, and I know there are some other companies that have um, uh, uh, integrase inhibitors and, and NNRTIs that are in development, but, but I couldn't find anything in the public domain that I could share with you. But you could, you could look at uh, these things if you're interested, and I think you get these slides. Um, so here's the same slide that Paul showed, and so it's very helpful, broadly neutralizing antibodies. So obviously, we want broadly neutralizing antibodies potentially for prevention. We want to, you know, um, be able to, for, for vaccines to elicit broadly neutralizing antibodies, and there's a lot of them, and they attach at different places all over the envelope. These are attaching against envelope. This is where they're going to work. You can really think about them in therapy as entry inhibitors. They're really entry inhibitors. That's what they are. They block entry. The problem with broadly neutralizing antibodies is what Paul went into in great detail, is they're broad, but they're not universally broad, right? Like, like I don't know, dolutegravir, bictegravir, they're super broad. They work at, on every integrase that, that exists, except for the ones that are selected for rarely by, by resistance. Even our broadest antibodies may work great for subtype B, but not so great for subtype C, which is, you know, most of Africa. Or they might be better for subtype C. This PGDM1400, which is purple, that's a V1, V2, is actually better against subtype C, but not so good against subtype B. So they're broad, but they're not that broad. Um, the one thing that is really convenient about them um, is you can manipulate them so they're very long-acting. Almost all of them can be manipulated. You change the FC receptor. There are a couple different types of mutations you can do. That's what was done with a lot of the COVID antibodies, but they can be very long-acting, uh, and I'll show you in a little bit. And there's even a, a group that's 
trying to develop a, antibodies that are tri-specific. So to get around the idea of, well, they're not that broad, or even though they're broad, is why don't we put three antibodies in, on one stick, right? It's one, the, the, the um, heavy chain stick and then the binding sites. Put three on one, and that's tri-specific. And, and, you know, that is kind of stuttering its way forward, and we'll see, see what happens. So, so remember, they're, they're broad, but they're not that broad. Um, they're very, they can be very, they can be manipulated to be very long-acting, and they target envelope. Um, there are um, broadly neutralizing antibodies that go after cellular targets, but these are also entry inhibitors. Ibilizumab, some people here, you guys with the 500, I'm sure you've used Ibilizumab. It's also an entry inhibitor. And then this, I think keep saying UB40, and Mike's gonna help me with UB40. I can't remember what UB, I think it's a group or a song or something, but it's UB421. Um, and um, that actually was in the New England Journal, but as far as I know, it's not gone anywhere. So here's an example. This is a, a CD4 binding antibody called uh, N6. Um, and, and this is just to show you that this was all done against subtype B viruses. So that's the type that's most prominent here in the US. And on the right graph is the susceptibility. And the farther you go to the right, the more resistant you are. Um, and what you can see is there's a broad range against subtype V viruses in terms of susceptibility, like a thousand-fold difference between that red dot up on the um, upper left to that uh, black dot or blue dot, whatever it is, way down on the right. And this is all subtype B, right? Um, uh, th that, for like integrase, that would be squished way down. And on the, on the left side is actually a single dose. And not surprisingly, the more susceptible you are to the antibody, the longer it works. So that one person there was actually suppressed for 80 days with a single infusion. That's that darker line there. But some people were barely suppressed at all, that very light blue, Carolina blue line, um, that, um, uh, 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 that barely even got down to half a log. So even against the subtype, you see this broad variability. Okay, so, so what about long-acting therapy? What, what can we do for long-acting therapy? So we have cabotegravir, right? But, which is really great, it's integrase, so most people who are untreated, previously untreated, treatment naive, um, are gonna be susceptible. Um, but what's the partner? Well, right now we have ropivirine, which has some drawbacks, mainly uh, NNRTI resistance. Um, and then there's this convenience issue, you know, you have to um, be shot in the backside. And um, uh, so there was a presentation at Croy looking at um, thigh injections, which would be more convenient, maybe could be done outside of a medical situation, uh, a setting. Um, and it, it certainly produced very good levels. But interestingly, the, the participants in the study who went from gluteal to thigh actually preferred gluteal um, because it was uncomfortable to get um, uh, that much um, uh, liquid into your thigh. So what about cabotegravir, one of these broadly neutralizing antibodies? Well, the ACTG is doing a study you can see on clinicaltrials.gov um, with uh, cabotegravir every four weeks and this VRCO7, 523LS, which is a, similar to that N6 that I showed you. Uh, and that is um, ongoing. In fact, it's going to end, 48-week um, follow-up for 75 people is going to end um, soon, very soon, in the next month and a half. So we'll learn whether that works. Um, so that's exciting. And then, of course, um, the company that makes CAB also is the one that owns this N6. So they're going to go forward 
um, with cabotegravir plus N6. And they're actually looking at um, formulations of cabotegravir that may have a longer half-life. So this is possible. It's possible. Um, well, what about lenacapavir? What kind of partners might lenacapavir need? And I'm going to show you two things. One is this phase two study. So this is a study done by the sponsor where they looked at lenacapavir um, uh, plus uh, two nukes. Uh, sorry, lenacapavir plus FTC um, uh, TAF, lenacapavir plus um, uh, or oral lenacapavir plus FTC TAF or uh, BF TAF. Um, and you might say, oh, well, what, why are you doing this? You're giving a long acting in pills. No one's going to do that for a sustained period of time. I, and you might wonder, I thought I wonder, what are they doing? And then at 28 weeks when people got suppressed, they continued lenacapavir plus oral TAF, and they continued lenacapavir plus oral bictegravir. Um, now, why would they do that? Um, well, because that people are thinking about long-acting TAF preparations, right? There, there's been publications about long-acting TAF and TAF being in an implantable thing. And I know, even though it's not in the public domain, uh, well, I don't know. I suspect that um, this company is actually thinking about long-acting integrase, and they want to show that two-drug therapy works, right? That's what they're trying to show with this, um, at least in suppressed people, that two-drug therapy works. And they showed that two-drug therapy works. It, these people stayed suppressed for a long period on lenacapavir and then either oral TAF or oral bictegravir. And there were very, very few uh, episodes of resistance emergence. Though, um, in each arm, there was one person, except in arm four, which was the BF TAF, um, uh, there was a person who developed some lenacapavir resistance. But, but they're looking for partners. And you might ask, well, what about cabotegravir as a partner? And I don't know. So this is the final thing I'm going to talk about. This is a study that I got to present at uh, CROI, uh, which um, went a different way for partners, right? Uh, two partners. So this is a menage a trois, maybe? Um, I hadn't thought about that. Um, it's lenacapavir with two antibodies, teropavimab, which is easy to say, and then zinlirivimab, which is a little harder to say. And they originally abbreviated this tab and zab. I said, I can't do that. I can't have tab, zab, and a jab, because I'll turn into Dr. Seuss. Um, so um, anyway, this was a study, randomized, blinded, um, of a long-acting regimen. Now, the important things here is people had to be suppressed. They actually had to be sensitive to both antibodies. And of the people screened, only about 45% could be demonstrated to be susceptible to both antibodies. They had to um, have a CD4 nadir above 350 and a CD4 entry above 500. And the randomization wasn't to placebo, because these are suppressed people. Everybody got a, a treatment with um, lenacapavir and two antibodies, but we looked at two different doses of the zirilivimab um, uh, uh, antibody. Uh, and unfortunately, you might remember that lenacapavir's development was interrupted transiently because of a crystal formation and, and during the, um, in the vials uh, that was a you know, manufacturing issue that's been solved, obviously. But this was supposed to be a year-long study with two treatments, one at zero and one at 26. It turned into a 26-week study with a year follow-up. So a single administration, 
no more pills. And what happened? Well, um, there were only 20 people, 10 in each arm, so not a lot of people. But nine out of 10 people in both arms stayed suppressed for 26 weeks with taking no pills. One person um, decided they were uncomfortable and they went back on therapy. They didn't rebound. They just went back on oral therapy. They weren't withdrawn from the study. That's a mistake. They, they stayed on the study but, and stayed suppressed, but they were also taking oral therapy. And well, excuse me, one person did rebound. So one out, of, one out of 20 people did rebound. Here's the rebounding person. We were very careful. Any rebound, immediately go back on oral therapy. So this person was 155 and then 534, uh, and then they went back on oral therapy. As yet, we have not been able to sequence that um, higher viral load plasma sample. Um, at, at baseline, of course, the person was susceptible to both antibodies, and we were able to look in the genetic material, the HIV DNA at baseline. There was no lenacapavir resistance, uh, but additional studies are ongoing. The, the person had no uh, impact on their CD4, and you might say, well, what about maybe they didn't have the right concentration, but the red line is the, uh, that one person and the, um, the shaded lines are, are the population, PK for, now we got tab and zab, uh, or, um, and lenacapavir, and you can see the PK was fine. So um, this is a possibility. There's a phase two study that is now being developed of these three agents, two antibodies and lenacapavir, every six months. And it's going to be not just one administration, it's going to be continuing six-monthly administrations for people are suppressed, also, there's a pilot where we're looking at people that are susceptible to just one of the antibodies. That pilot is ongoing. 90% um, of people with subtype B are susceptible to one or the other antibody. Um, you might say, oh, come on, who's really going to do this? And it's possible. Maybe no one is in would be interested in doing this. On the other hand, some people might be interested in, um, in getting therapy once every six months. And, and potentially, if this works, maybe could reach some of the difficult-to-reach people. So here's my summary. Um, uh, the needs for new oral therapy are limited. I think less frequent dosing, maybe monthly, uh, sorry, maybe weekly is possible. As far as I know, there's no real opportunity for monthly oral therapy, uh, but the lenacapavir, slatavir study is now started, and people are enrolling, uh, so we'll see. Um, our current therapy is very high bar uh, to replace them. Um, and I think the other thing is the motivation for companies, right, to develop oral therapies might diminish because um, uh, if you look at a, a very effective, well-tolerated oral therapy, fostemzivir, is really only being used for people who are failing and have high levels of drug resistance. And it's just not very commonly used, not because it's bad, but because it's the, those people are uncommon. I think long-acting therapy is a new frontier um, longer intervals, I think, are the first hurdle to overcome. We need to find partners to lenacapavir, and, and that's being worked on. Um, I think it's going to be cumbersome to start, but there are a few people in the audience, um, I'm looking at one, um, who remembers probably setting alarm clocks for patients, or at least um, having colleagues that were setting alarm clocks for patients to take their AZT every four hours. We told them six times a day, every four hours, wake up in the middle of the night, take your AZT. Um, so, yeah, IV infusions are, are uncommon. It turns out in Johannesburg, you can go to an IV infusion bar. 
It's a bar. You can go, and if you want vitamin C, vitamin B, you can get saline if you're, you know, you're a little dehydrated. So, so you know, who knows what could happen. Um, I think BNABs are promising, but there's, but there's a lot of questions about susceptibility, feasibility, cost, manufacture. Um, and I think, to me, it's really small molecules is where, where we need to go. But in the interim, long-acting, uh, broadly neutralizing antibodies might be, might be a uh, possibility for some people. Okay, so we're going to, this is to make sure you were listening, okay? <laughs> Which of the following human studies for HIV treatment and prevention are ongoing or starting now, not before, but now, for, for the novel agent Islatrovir? So go, go ahead and vote. The goal here is 100%. People are afraid to vote. I, we have to get better music. I, I can't waltz. I have no idea. <laughs> Hopefully for your cases, Mike, we have an upgrade. <laughs> Uh, we, we can look any any time. Daily oral and weekly oral, 39%. So 39% of you are awake. <laughs> <laughs> um, Long-acting implants are uh, being investigated in animals, but the, any human uh, studies are not being done. And then the monthly oral for prevention is out. Um, and there are some studies that are actually ongoing right now. And the second question, um, which of the following statements is true? Which one is true about broadly neutralizing monoclonal antibodies? Um, and you can see the choices there. I'm, I'm not going to read them. Um, keyword neutralizing. I'm hoping better than 39%. I know why you guys are asleep. <laughs> it's the music. <laughs> Keep voting. All right, there we go. We got above 50%. Excellent. They can be um, altered to support very infrequent dosing, um, but it's enveloped envelope that neutralizes, not gag or, or polymerase. Um, perfect. Okay. Uh, questions, I guess. Yeah. Don't be afraid to come up to the microphone. Right. We already have a couple of questions, Joe. Okay. Um, let me just use this microphone. Oh, yeah. Oh, oh I'll, yeah. I'll, I'll, yeah. So um, we do see patients who have real pivorine resistance who would be good candidates for injectable treatment. So would that be somebody in whom uh, cab, uh, linacaprevir might be something that would be possible? Yeah, there, there's a lot of talk about that, and I, I, I think it's plausible, and, and um, uh, at least for suppressed people, likely, likely to be successful, um, you know, based on um, the ACDG study and other studies where, where two drugs with cabotegravir are likely to work. Um, I don't know if it's feasible in terms of insurance. Um, I, and I also don't know, certainly cabotegravir exists, right, as, as a prevention intervention, 
whether you can prescribe carbotegravir alone or whether you'd have to throw in the ropivirine, even though you know it might not be contributing. But people are absolutely talking about this. And you two, you very experienced people out there, there may be people where this is exactly appropriate. And I was just talking with Sandy about such a patient um, uh, before. Um, so um, I don't, uh, Monica Gandhi tells me she has a few patients on that combination in her cohort from UCSF. So. I think it can be done. I don't know how hard it is to do it. And related to Dr. Gandhi and her study at Retrovirus, so, you know, we have patients who check every box on the social determinants of health questionnaire mm. and have a lot of difficulty adhering, or even in many cases, beginning antiretroviral therapy. What additional data do we need to go with a direct-to-inject approach where you start people on long-acting injectable? Yeah, I think that's, that's an excellent question. Um, so in the study from UCSF, um, I can't remember, I think there are like 130 people on the study, but 57, I think is the right number, 59 maybe, were actually biremic at mm -hmm. the start. And, and so that's a pretty small number to really change. And, and it's important that in, these were people that reliably well, not reliably. These were people that were engaged with the clinic. Mm -hmm. They had to have be clinic participants and have had visits in the clinic. I think we need a study, a larger study, um, that um, is, is replicated across sites, probably also in people who are at least engaged at some level before we start injecting people, you know, when they leave Grady. Um, uh, you know, but, but um, I, I think we need more data from a broader group of people. That's what I think. But I think it's coming. We're, we're, we're working on it. Okay. And do we have any other questions from the audience? I mean, I'll, I'll go ahead. Go ahead, Paul. So just to follow up, I mean, I see a lot of patients like Jeff, Dr. Lennox described. So they come to clinic, but they cannot take their medicine. And I would love to be able to give them an injection. So if I were to do that now, I don't think I could do it even if wanted to because of insurance, right? No, it turns out people are doing it. Um, it, it depends a little bit on the insurance. Um, at least in North Carolina, we've maybe done four or five people like that. I have two in my clinic. Um, one was a, a is a methamphetamine addict who just said, I'm never going to take pills. I'll come to clinic every time, all the time, but I'm not going to take pills. He is suppressed. Another is a man who... Um, uh, always said he was taking his medicine, but you call the pharmacy and they say, well, he refilled his medicine in June and then he refilled them again in December. Um, and so he, he is also suppressed. Um, but um, there's risk. But you can do it. You absolutely can do it. Now, whether people that have um, uh, private insurance, you could do the same thing, I'm not sure. Who's done this? Who's given cobalopivirine to a viremic person? Fair number of people, yeah. about half yeah. a dozen maybe. Yeah, so pe people, are, people are doing it. I'm not encouraging it, believe me, I'm not. I would do this incredibly carefully, very selectively. They would be people that could come to clinic. It's 100% off-label, which, which I, if I didn't say that, I should have said it. Uh, but, but, um, uh, it uh, but I think it, 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 there is a, very, a subset of patients that, that might benefit. Can I ask a totally different question? Can you comment about the safety of monoclonals versus uh, molecular drugs to inhibit HIV? 
Yeah, that, that's a really great question, and you know the answer to it. But the, the, um, the monoclonal antibodies um, that are directed at non-human targets, and, and which is you know, all the COVID antibodies and all the um, HIV broadly neutralizing antibodies, have been very, 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 very safe. Um, uh, there are occasional infusion reactions, but they're actually pretty rare. Um, and the other thing that's interesting about them is anti-drug antibodies um, uh, are very uncommon, uh, remarkably uncommon. Now, I don't know when people start putting three heads on one antibody molecule, I don't know what will happen there, but, but um, they're, they're very uncommon. So it's, it's quite safe, and they're, and they're well tolerated. Um, so, um, again, it may be something people are willing to do. I think it has the direct implication on the last study that you presented. Sure. Yeah, because if you could do twice yearly. Yeah, no, I, yeah, I think it, uh, you know, uh, I, I know that um, the um, VRC, the Vaccine Research Center, has three antibodies that they think are every six monthly um, that could be combined that attack three different targets on that really nice diagram that, that Paul showed us and I, I reprised there. Um, so it's possible, and, and I think having at least one small um, molecule, the lenacapavir, you know, may have made the difference in that situation. And we'll see, maybe, that one thing about antibody susceptibility is it is predictive pretty well when people are viremic, which I showed you with that N6 one, that, that where um, it's not as clear that when you get um, a sequence out of um, HIV DNA, so an archive test, it's not as clear that that susceptibility is as, as predictive. Mm -hmm. So that's why um, the, this pilot of single susceptibility, they're still getting both antibodies, but they're only susceptible to one plus lenacapavir. So we'll see what happens there. So one question I had for you, which is, a, you know, an opinion, obviously. You know, when we were routinely prophylaxing against MAC, patient satisfaction data and trials data indicated that a once-weekly azithromycin was superior to the more frequent dosing. Mm -hmm. Do you think if we actually had a weekly therapy available for our patients that they would use it preferentially over daily therapy? I yeah. mean, what's your opinion? Uh, well, my opinion is that it, it'll be personalized, much like Paul said. I, I do think that, that there was a, um, a survey done in, in, at Duke, which I, I just hate to say that word, but Duke. And, um, <laughs> It's a four-letter word, by the way, in case you didn't notice. Um, and in South Carolina, um, and, and that was actually the highest preference for people living with HIV was once weekly oral. Um, so I, I think, uh, you know, for certain people, that's probably just right. And, and people who have challenges of adherence, you could imagine, you know, a weekly phone call or some weekly automated reminder that clinics could do. It's, it's really hard to do it daily, but... but um, uh, um, so, I, but will people wholesale jump to that? I don't know. But, but I think there'll be a substantial proportion of the population. I, what do you think? I agree. I mean, I think when I've talked to my individual patients about it, um, they would be more likely to take a weekly pill than a monthly self-injection. Yep. That's, you know, yep. my small group. Yep. No, I, I, that, that survey study said exactly yeah. that. Yeah. Um, you know, Month, weekly pill versus every six months. But, I mean, if you have to come and get an infusion and you don't live in Johannesburg, um, you know, that might be too much. But um, if there was a six-monthly injection. The one thing I didn't mention about lenacapavir is even though it, it is only once 
um, every six months. It's two injections. I, I might not have mentioned that. And injection site reactions are quite common, and they can be sore, and not sore for, you know, 24 hours. They can be sore for multiple days or even, you know, Yeah, longer. it sounded very similar to what we used to see with T20. T20, right, yeah. exactly. I mean, obviously, you don't get injections twice a day. You don't have, you know, 60 right. of them per month, but, but they, they are annoying, yeah. as it turns out. All right, well, uh, that ends our question and answer period. Thank you, Dr. Iran. Yes. And we're, yeah.